0: Back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speaker's and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis, and today I am talking with uh, Mark, uh, trauma surgeon, and we are going to go over uh, generally lower extremity trauma. Uh, how's things going?
1: Good, but. You interrupted that music. I was listening to it. Yeah, you can listen to it later.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, no comedy here. So. <laughs> but uh, if uh, it's been a while since you've been on the podcast, so would you mind doing just a real quick intro?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, Mark Shapiro and uh, I developed the uh, medical proficiency training with a Special Forces Medics, the 18 Deltas, have uh, been doing that for probably six years now, you know, since uh, about 2014, and uh, working with uh, Ragged Edge uh, Solutions, and that's what uh, how I keep uh, keep busy, and, uh, you know, I impart uh, as much knowledge as I can on them, and uh, they uh, undoubtedly do the same with me. The, uh, the civilian... Uh, military collaborations, uh, something that uh, I think is uh, super important, and uh, I think we need to keep it up and keep everybody safe.
0: Yeah, absolutely, and we definitely appreciate it. So yeah, we're on location right now uh, during uh, Darkwoods here at Ragged Edge Solutions in their PFC uh, course, and so I saw Mark and I saw a target opportunity, and so I took it. So what I'd like to get into, because this has been kind of a question, and not necessarily a problem, but definitely a a learning point uh, during some of these training events is uh, orthopedic trauma. And the first thing we'll go over, I'd like to go over, is uh, limb salvage. So, you know, I think, uh, you know, a traumatic amputation uh, is generally pretty straightforward. Like, the limb is gone, you put a tourniquet on, um, and we move forward. But not always is it going to be a clean... Uh, wound. It can be a mangled wound, uh, compound fractures, et cetera, et cetera. And now the real question comes is, is this limb salvageable or not? Should I approximate the tourniquet or not? Um, so what I'd like to ask you is how do you kind of approach the situation? What's your thought process with it?
1: Right. Well, as you and your listeners well know, there's blunt and penetrating trauma. And we tend to approach those a little differently, right? And so the mangled extremity almost implies, uh, at least in the civilian world, that um, this is blunt trauma. However, you know, high energy rounds uh, can, you know, behave in a similar fashion where the limb is uh, completely avulsed and you have a complete amputation. Similarly, penetrating trauma, you know, with a blunt edge uh, device of any sort, um, whether like a combine, for instance, uh, here in the civilian world, uh, or, you know, or just a really blunt edge object at at high energy, um, can really destroy the soft tissue to the point where uh, it may not be salvageable. I think some some thoughts are early on when you go and assess that limb is is it bleeding, as I shared with the students uh, yesterday. It's not uncommon for the arteries to uh, be thrombosed, to be clotted, uh, typically. The veins are like that, but the arteries also, you know, very muscular. They'll they'll uh, retract and and go into spasm, which is you know a life-saving event for many of these folks. And uh, the ones uh, that are partially transected are the ones that probably continue to bleed and become a problem. The good news is, hopefully, you can identify them, put a finger on them. Uh, the tourniquet will absolutely help identify them, and then hopefully you can tie them off or. Potentially shunt them depending on where this is. If you're on the X, you're not going to do a shunt, uh, but if you're close to uh, to help, uh, that's certainly an option. So, um, so how do you assess it? I think the bottom line is, and most people would agree with this, uh, is that if there's a blood supply and if there is innervation, if the innervation is intact, we're not talking sensation, uh, we're talking mostly motor. Uh, if that's intact, you're going to do everything you can to uh, salvage the limb, and in, at the m- least you're going to salvage as much length as possible. So why is that important? And it's important uh, because of the energy and the metabolism associated with the length of the limb, okay? And, um, and even if you can't salvage the entire length that you're hoping to uh, salvage, Um, What you want to do is salvage as much soft tissue as possible. What do I mean by that? I mean muscle and skin. So the bone will have to be um, uh, uh, removed uh, so that there's enough soft tissue to cover it for your prosthesis. And, and cover that bone so that over time, when the muscle atrophies and all that's left is the skin and the callus, uh, the bone isn't uh, creating another wound and uh, penetrating through, through the skin essentially and creating all kinds of problems for the, uh, for the patient.
0: When you're, uh, when you're talking about um, assessing for motor I guess what kind of assessment? Just can you move it? Can you move anything? Uh, toes, or
1: yeah. So, so on. You know, like I said, on the X, you're, the medic is gonna. Uh, if they're not, if it's not care under fire, mm-hmm. uh, they're going to assess for a blood supply. They're gonna look for a pulse, and even if they don't feel a pulse, it's too early to make a determination. Uh, even if they get to, uh, a surgeon, you know, like you know, you, there's a Mao or something there, uh, they're probably not going to do a definitive amputation unless it is so mangled, uh, that they're and the surgeon and the medic get a good exam. Mm-hmm. Um, it's unlikely that they're going to get a definitive procedure. They're going to get it washed out. They're going to get it dressed. They're going to get their antibiotics and they're going to get packaged, uh, to go to their next level of care. Mm -hmm. If they don't feel a pulse, you know, ultrasound is an option now. I think your medics are becoming absolutely facile with ultrasonography and how to identify an artery a vein and even to the point of better anatomical definition. So then that gets to the nerve. And if your patient's awake and they're able to respond, you're gonna have them do some motor activity. You're gonna see if they flex, extend, if they can adduct and abduct. If they can do that, they may have a chance. Now, let's say it's on a farm or someplace where the soil is absolutely filthy. It's gonna be tough, but I don't think that the answer is is, um, whether you amputate or not right there. I think it's gonna be defined over time. You know, the the orthopedic literature has come up with a number of uh, brilliant papers, teamwork, uh, collaborations, rather, uh, with a LEAP study and uh, and the METAL study, METAL looking particularly at military uh, amputations, uh, upper and lower extremity, where these consortiums, that's the word I was looking for, these consortiums uh, are looking really at uh, what can they get out of this, is early amputation better? remember years ago, around the Gulf War, people were saying, early amputation, early rehab, better survival. Well, we've learned a lot. Unfortunately, that's what wars bring. A lot of education, a lot of learning opportunities. And although the answer isn't clear all the time, uh, we are able to salvage limbs that we probably would have gone on to early amputation before the issue that we see is military versus civilian these tend to be younger people these tend to be people who are in better shape and start off better sure there's your, you know your smokers and things like that and a few obese people uh, but um, you know the soft com- uh, community and those folks who are susceptible to getting hit by an IED these are generally young healthy people uh, that are suffering these amputations so the blood supply in some ways may be better um and uh, and their attitude towards rehabilitation is probably better than people who are getting amputations for things like trauma, a generally younger population. Uh, and then there's the the uh, patients who get amputations for uh, comorbid disease like diabetics and so forth. And that's the nice thing about the metal studies or the metal consortiums is that they're looking basically at military, well, they are uh, military uh, folks.
0: Okay. Now, especially when we're talking about prolonged field care. Okay. So now, kind of the challenge comes, you know, after an hour, two hours, etc. Um, do I reduce or reapproximate this tourniquet? I, ideally, you want to, but I have to decipher what is the risk, what is the reward if I try and reapproximate it and it fails, um, the potential is, you know, he's gonna to continue to bleed versus, and maybe it's uncontrollable, okay? Um, I just have to reapproximate it back to where it was. I had last control, I would think, but the risk for re-bleeding is definitely there um, versus, you know, salvaging as much tissue as possible for prosthetics per se. So usually that comes with an amputation, you know, is it above the knee, is it below the knee? Um, things like that, at least from what I've heard. Um, I guess if you were in that PFC situation, you have a mangled limb, I guess, and you have, you know, patient is has is being resuscitated. We're still kind of in that state, you know, hour two, hour three comes by, and now we're really thinking like we should do something with this tourniquet. What is your thought process versus that risk versus reward?
1: So you, you've uh, you've brought up a number of great questions and a number of great thoughts, and uh, I'm going to try and answer them. And I'm trying not to go try not to go down that rabbit hole. So yeah, uh, just uh, just redirect me if I pause a little bit and try and figure out how to answer your question because there's so many things going on. Okay. So uh, so I'll just start. Um, sharing with you my thoughts as I were to come on to the, uh, you know, roll over, roll on the patient that, um, uh, that's, uh, that's down.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So number one, you're, you're absolutely correct. Every civilian, every military personnel should know how to put on a tourniquet by now. Mm-hmm. We know that's not the case, but at least we've got Stop the Bleed. It's been a very successful campaign worldwide. So, uh, so you put the tourniquet on, and you're going to put it on high. And if it doesn't, you know, you you uh, you have to have the uh, windlass on your tourniquet, right? So almost all personnel has the tourniquet with a windlass. Mm-hmm. We're not going to get into wide band and narrow band type tourniquets. Um, but what I am saying is belts and ties and shirts won't work unless you have something to make it excruciatingly painful, and that's what the one last does. So you do that, and if that doesn't work, you're going to add a second tourniquet. The second tourniquet's now applied, and it's nice and high. And, um, and uh, so now you get the patient outside of danger, right? You move them to a, to a safe place, and now you start to assess the wound sometimes you get lucky depending on how bad this injury is and you're able to see the vessels so if you're able to tie off a single vessel that's bleeding that's great you win now you know the extent ieds as you know bring just horrific uh, organisms deep within the moon far higher than what we can see and so you know that patient's going to need uh, urgent uh, irrigation and debridement, but more urgent than, than that is really getting those antibiotics on board. And that's been shown uh, time and again that early antibiotics will make a difference. So so now you've, you've given the antibiotics, you're in a safe place, and now you're trying to evaluate, do we uh, convert that tourniquet more uh, distally to preserve more of that soft tissue that we were talking about earlier and so the answer is of course you're going you're definitely going to evaluate it and so you let the tourniquet down and it uh, would would reasonably that you're going to see some muscle bleeding you don't ignore the muscle bleeding but that's not the important stuff the important stuff uh, are really the big arteries and veins that are you're dealing with. The veins um, can be a little tough to deal with sometimes because they're not as muscular. They can certainly bleed depending on how proximal they are. And yes, uh, simple pressure will hold those off. If you can find them, tie them off. Um, They tend to be a little fragile. The arteries, on the other hand, um, although it has some dramatic bleeding, uh, they're more muscular. They're definitely able to hold a stitch. And even, you know, somebody whose catecholamines are rushing, who tends to break every suture, they, the arteries are, you know, they can handle a good a good stitch and a good rough knot. And, uh, and so uh, that's what you would do if you can see it. And then you don't have to worry about the tourniquet. And I think the reason why it's a good question is people think about tourniquets and arterial and venous bleeding. Venous tourniquets are useless for arteries. They're the ones that you start tightening down and the patient starts screaming and you never get that arterial um, hemorrhage to stop. An arterial tourniquet, what I mean is that you tighten that windlass down so tight that the artery stops. The problem is, and again, this is where I think you're coming from is that when you tighten it down, you stop all blood supply to the area. So you get tissue damage, tissue damage in the form of skin, which really will, could render um, that limb ineffective. You would have to do you know numerous skin grabs to cover it, but you also take the muscle. And when you take the muscle, you take away the padding for that limb, for the prosthetic, and, uh, and that's why it's essential to evaluate uh, and see if you can convert that uh, tourniquet more distally. If you don't do that, you have muscle necrosis, and that can lead to rhabdomyolysis and rhabdomyolysis. Uh, kidney damage you know release of electrolytes and toxins and so forth so that when you do release that tourniquet uh, the patient can become you know acutely hypotensive Uh, and again the whole washout with a potassium you have to be prepared uh, to protect the heart with that with your calcium and potentially bicarb uh, due to the uh, brief acidosis um but, uh, and, and, fluids, 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 right? Um, bicarb is not something that I would advocate for. And, uh, as far as treatment for rhabdomyolysis, just like mannitol, I wouldn't, uh, you're just going to treat the rhabdo with, uh, fluid and pushing urine output greater than hundred milliliters an hour. And that's all on your JTS CPGs that everybody can check me on, right. but, um, But again, it's that conversion of that tourniquet, that evaluation is going to be key uh, once you get to a a safe place.
0: So what would that limb have to look like for you to risk? Um, It's worth taking the risk to reduce that tourniquet because that's when you're going to find the bleed. Right. well
1: you, you would hope so right sometimes right. the arteria goes into spasm for hours okay. and uh, and so let's say that you don't find the bleeding vessel the tourniquet is uh, let down um, do not turn your back on that patient mm-hmm. in other words the patient gets rewarmed they get resuscitated so they go from a blood pressure, systolic blood pressure, say, of 80, and now they're in the 110s and 120s, now they've got a pressure head, and now they can bleed. And so I'm not saying, you know, although I think permissive hypotension, there's definitely a role in our patients, I am not talking about permissive hypotension. I'm talking about resuscitation, where the patient's rewarmed, they're resuscitated with fluid, and obviously our favorite fluid is blood, whole blood, um, and uh, and now that pressure head allows the artery to bleed. After the patient's been dressed, antibiotics, uh, tourniquets, and has been reduced, um, and uh, people are paying attention to the other set of casualties, and the dressing is getting soaked, and nobody realizes it, and they've already lost a couple units of blood.
0: Right. Yep. Definitely, because I think. From the from the tourniquet conversions that I've seen, it's kind of like a 15-minute thing. You take the tourniquet down. Uh, it's not bleeding. Okay, everything's good. Um, you know, maybe I'll leave it on for now. But then, at some point, somebody's like, "Hey, I need a tourniquet." Oh, I'm not, this guy doesn't really need it anymore. You know, it's been down for 30 minutes. No, he's not bleeding. And then uh, suddenly he really needs it. He really needs it back. Um, so I think people understand that a little bit more. Maybe not how long they need to be prepared for that. I think, you know, definitely you're right, you know, hours of uh, potentially watching this because it can reopen just with pressure alone um, or transport or any other movement. Um, but where do I draw the line of it's, it's worth the risk? To convert this tourniquet versus it is I I do not think this is salvageable. I do not think it's worth the risk. I'm going to leave the tourniquet where it is um, and preserve life versus limb.
1: Well, I, I, and I think that's the answer, right? If it's if it's life versus limb, you're always going to you know keep that tourniquet. And um, again, if you if you can get a, an exam, if you can get a neurologic exam, a motor exam. Um, then it's you would do your best to preserve that limb. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can't get a motor exam and the tourniquet hasn't been on, um, that limb is probably not going to survive. So, should you do a completion amputation, and again in the CPGs, we're preaching call telemedicine. Mm-hmm. There is somebody that's going to give you an answer. And uh, my, you know, what I would do today and what I would do tomorrow. Um, it all depends on you know all the things that we say it just depends and for me to go over that list would not help anybody it would just confuse people right so motor exam and in uh, arterial supply um, that's going to be your answer that's what you're looking for perfusion and and motor the um, the data on uh, people salvaging the uh, uh, limbs who who initially don't have uh, plantar sensation is, is really showing us that you know just because you don't have it then doesn't mean you're never going to have it, and so uh, you know the, the the other thing are these you know these athletes you know it may be that there's so much destruction to the bone and so much um, uh, both soft and bony uh, destruction that an arthrodesis, or basically fusing these joints together, that's not going to help these guys. They, they won't want that. They may ask for an amputation later. What I'm talking about is preserving that soft tissue so that in the event that an amputation is required, um, do the best you can. So what about that patient that has a very a flail, flail extremity? And Many times you and I may be thinking of the lower extremity. We can't forget the upper extremity and the upper extremity. We may think of things a little more differently or at least a little more emotionally, because that's almost all of our livelihood. Mm -hmm. We're not talking surgeons. We're talking car mechanics. We're talking teachers. We're talking people who drive vehicles. So although, yes, you can drive without a limb and you can drive without two limbs, um, the fact is, is we are tied to our upper extremities a lot more emotionally than we are our lower extremities.
0: Right. No, absolutely right. Um, so if you had to choose or as the deciding factor, pulse versus motor, um, which would you put your money on? I'm not sure I understand the question. Uh, I do an assessment. I have a pulse. I have no motor.
1: Or, yeah. I, if you have a pulse, that's great um yeah so go with that i would take that uh, over motor um the motor you know mm-hmm. takes time the pulse is what you need relatively urgently and yes you can you know salvage a limb you know, that's pulseless for hours four to six hours six is always the book answer but quite honestly, at four hours, you better be like prepping to get in the, in the operating room because by the time you get a shunt in there, at the very least, um, it's probably going to be pretty darn close to six. And most of our patients, you know, we kid, we joke, and we say, well, they didn't read the book. The tissue is going to be ischemic. You are going to pay a big debt in that between that four to six hours. You may even pay a big debt after one or two hours. Right. So, you know, a very muscular person that's a big debt that's a lot of dead muscle mm-hmm. versus somebody who's a little more sinewy, right yep,
0: do you have anything else you need you'd like to add
1: well um yeah one one more thing, and I think it's it's super important it's it's uh, and, and it it really gets to the gist of uh, what you were talking about earlier is how do you know um, whether you should preserve that, that length or not. And it's not a cosmetic question, it's an energy question, it's a metabolic question. And so, to appreciate that, um, the shorter you go, the more energy it takes to, to move, right? And uh, so, for instance, um, you know, somebody who just has part of their foot blown off, you know, 15% of their energy. Um, will be 15% more energy will be required to create locomotion versus something like, um, a very low BKA, you know, that's, you know, maybe 10%, uh, and uh, a very short BKA goes up to 40%. And so all of a sudden the amount of energy to, to, uh, move, uh, stride, if you will, uh, goes up exponentially. Um, and uh, transformoral uh, amputations uh, from trauma, 70% of the energy is, is required to move. So these prostheses that we are using are getting better and better. Um, but uh, it doesn't change what the body needs uh, to create locomotion. Right. And, uh, and so the, the questions you ask are critical Because that could be the difference between an above knee amputation and below knee amputation, by as much as 30 percent difference, right? So, you know, with femur at you know 68 percent, 70 percent, and and a BKA, a below knee amputation, you know, at anywhere between 10 and 40 percent, depending on where that is, is a big decision to make and the responsibility to make that decision is enormous. And that's why if you do what you can to get that tourniquet as low as you can, identify those bleeders so you don't have to use a tourniquet if at all possible. You just don't want to waste any blood. And, uh, and that's you know, probably one of our more valuable resources.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, another issue is we have uh, pelvic fractures with concomitant femoral uh, femur fractures. Now, generally, we understand, hey, we're going to keep the pelvic binder on because um, that's the higher risk, right? Right. Um, but, uh, you know, a good traction to go with that femur fracture, it's going to be pretty helpful for reducing pain and uh, just getting everything kind of straightened out. Uh, what do you think about putting a traction splint with a concomitant uh, pelvic uh fracture
1: right so the reason why you want to, and and what i'm thinking when you talk about pelvic fractures i'm thinking about the s tabular fractures and the posterior s tabular fractures big bad fractures Mm -hmm. um i'm not necessarily thinking about pubic rami or pelvic brim or anything like that and um and so uh, it all depends on how fast you can get those to an orthopedic surgeon who's going to do, you know, a, a nice reduction. And they may not even do a definitive reduction or a definitive surgery, uh, but, they, but, but in general, that's the idea is get them to get their, uh, get their definitive surgery as soon as possible for their pelvis. Their femur, uh, which again, like you said, in the meantime, before they go for their surgery, uh, reduction is key for blood loss and pain, and you're absolutely right on that. To apply that reduction the way we do in the civilian world is really through a pin. We put a metal rod, you know, uh, uh, through the bone and apply weights at the end, and that's how we reduce it, and it gets the the, the uh, bone at length. Mm-hmm. Again, key for decreasing blood loss, key for pain management, and, uh, and all of that's nice and well. So what happens when you have both? Well, um, if you have both, you're probably going to want to put both under traction, right? But what you don't want is a lot of movement and play, Uh, In between. You don't want to disrupt clot. You don't want to cause an injury, scissor, knife, whatever, uh, a nearby vessel. And so, although I'm not an orthopedic surgeon uh, and I didn't sleep at a Holiday Inn last night, I think that um, it is reasonable to apply some traction uh, if you have both fractures at the same time and you're not able to get them somewhere where they can be, uh, get an external fixator on. Uh, f- for, for either, quite frankly, uh, but the S-tabular fracture really takes an expert, a, a, an orthopedic traumatologist. And uh, and so, um, so yeah, I don't think you should withhold traction. You're not going to put a pin in. The medics are not going to put a pin in. It's unlikely that they're going to get a pin for traction. Uh, so that means probably a hair splint. And so, Here's my concern with traction. Now that now that I've gone through all that and say, well, if you need to do traction, you can do traction. The problem with that is the skin necrosis from prolonged traction on that ankle or distal uh, distal tibia. So you have to be very thoughtful about um, that velcro um, tie around the ankle and rendering that skin. An ankle ischemic. Mm -hmm. So yes, you can apply traction. You probably have to give it a break every, you know, hour, two hours or so, and maybe you're just, you know, borrowing a medic or, you know, another teammate to to apply manual traction uh, to give the skin a break.
0: Okay. So kind of like your nursing care. Going with traction, just like uh, bed sores and anything else.
1: Exactly, exactly, because you take that skin, you know, you're you're not going to want to do a skin graft, but, you know, you may have to. And that's over a joint that has all kinds of problems. So, yeah, you'd have to pay particular attention uh, if you had to sit there for 48, 72 hours on a patient. Uh, with a, you know, a very complex femur fracture, acetabular fracture.
0: Right. So other than skin necrosis, because, I mean, that sounds bad, but, you know, the benefit of straightening that limb out is pretty, is pretty big, right? Acutely, um, it
1: absolutely is.
0: Is there any other risks um, by putting traction or maybe even too much traction, uh, any risk to the pelvis?
1: Well, you, you really, you know, if, it, if it's a hip fracture dislocation, you know, the dislocation is an, an emergency. Mm-hmm. Um you know, if uh, you can get a, a femoral neck necrosis, femoral head necrosis um, because of the the very uh, poor blood supply. Mm-hmm. And so that's got to be reduced. And uh, if it's not reduced or not identified and not reduced, um, there are going to be some very long-term consequences uh, with that patient. You know, I suppose, you know, you could have some midterm ones with infection because the bone doesn't have the blood supply it needs. And I'm assuming that this is done in a very unclean environment of one form or another. Uh, but, but arthritis is really going to be a big, big problem um, mm-hmm. for that patient, and they're going to have more surgeries later. Um, other big downstream complications, I'm really not,
0: you know. So what I'm thinking of, is that pelvic binder going to be strong enough? Uh, assuming, of course, I've done everything correctly. It's in the, right, it's in the proper place, yeah. you know, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Is that going to be strong enough point for that traction to push against to give me a a good traction for the femur without disrupting or worsening the pelvic fracture?
1: Yeah. And and I mean, the bottom line is, I don't know. We don't we don't know. Right. So in my mind, I'm thinking of a closed Mm -hmm. uh, complex fracture. But, you know, there's also open uh, fractures where uh, the angulation of that femur is right through the skin. And that is a real I mean, that is a horrific problem, especially in the field. Okay, you know, very, very high energy. Uh, fracture um, osteo all that stuff is, is coming to bear and you add to that the pelvic fracture I don't know if you're going to be able to get enough uh, traction on that to, to reduce that and uh, again the hip dislocation you can uh, you can reduce the hip dislocation uh, but it but I don't know how you do that reduce the hip dislocation with a big open femur fracture right. like that and keep it uh, You know, that's a whole... That's a really, really, really bad problem.
0: Right. So you think that would be uh, worth a telemedicine call to go one direction or the other?
1: I think that would be the first thing on my mind.
0: (laughs) Please help me. (laughs)
1: Antibiotics, telemed, reduce. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, wash out somewhere down the line, but yeah.
0: Yeah. I think um, when when you're running into like multiple issues that are confounding each other, uh, I definitely want to reach out to somebody like you who is far away from the situation and can think about uh, the entire picture, and hopefully I can paint it well enough um, to help me think through the situation and give me some good advice because uh, people kind of, I think, overestimate how well they're able to think under stress.
1: I think that's true for all of us, yeah. um, and I think that's where experience comes in. And uh, I'll be honest with you, if I was at the end of that telemedicine consult, uh, I would be reaching out to uh, an orthopedic traumatologist. Um, I'm hoping that they have uh, more experience with something that complex. Um, But there's, you know, common sense wins almost all the time. And... uh, and uh, especially the soft medics, um, you're just lucky if you run into those folks. In my experience working with them uh, here at, at Ragged Edge and, and even uh, on their medical proficiency training, um, not only is it a joy to work with them, there's a lot of exchange of information and they help me think of things and prepare for questions like that, uh, which I have received before um, for any you know number of reasons. Um, and, uh, and and that is not a typical in, in, in my understanding and my experience, that is not a typical bad problem that we encounter or asked to deal with, which mm-hmm. is that big open femur fracture, um, you know, deep or, or very acute angulation and, uh, and a bad uh, acetabular fracture together. Uh, unless it's you know a bad IED mm-hmm. and uh, and those patients who have all that together those are, those patients may not make it to us and maybe that's not maybe that's why we don't get a lot of those calls
0: right right I mean you're definitely talking about some big strong bones and if it's gonna if it's received that much energy to fracture them um, he definitely is going to have other issues on top of all this um to uh, complicate the situation even worse um uh, for lower extremity trauma, is there anything else that you see guys uh, struggling with
1: um, uh, you know do I see them struggling with i th- it's it's the decision making which arguably is the most important thing mm-hmm. um, and uh and I think they they struggle with it because of a inexperience, and b there's not a lot written. To the point of you know, uh, that, well maybe I shouldn't say there's not a lot, there's a ton of stuff written, but it's all one off. It's, it's it's anecdotes, and uh, and that's you know a lot of what we have to go on, you know. Um, antibiotics early is always key, but antibiotics only go where there's a blood supply. Mm-hmm. So antibiotics and a tourniquet means that that the uh, end wound, the wound itself, uh, isn't getting uh, antibiotics. So you got to keep it clean and pack it, and, um, and and I also think that at least in the soft medic community, um, they do—they're very good at going with what they know, mm-hmm. and they do know to get antibiotics, and they do know to get the wound washed out, and they do know to stabilize the wound. So um, I think they're you know pretty pretty comfortable uh, with things, and I don't see them struggling with trying to treat the patient on the X. I mean, they're tactically, they're fantastic, and uh, strategically, they're fantastic, and, uh, and they do know to call for help.
0: Yeah, I mean, it always comes back to, you know, life versus limb, right? Yes, sir. So you stabilize the life, then we can start worrying about restoring the limb. Um, I think, you know, you, you hit it real well. You know, just doing good assessments is gonna help you make that decision and it's not be an emotional one. It's, uh, or a feeling one, it's do your assessments. Is it, can can you get good perfusion to this area? Do you have good pulses? Do you have good cap refill? Um, Do you see um, kind of that muscular bleeding that's going to tell you that this tissue is viable? And uh, do do you, hopefully, do you have any motor control on it as well? Um, Just keep in mind that it may take some time to actually get that motor control back because it's been without perfusion for an extended period of time. I, I
1: agree. And and just to add one more caveat, and this isn't because where we're sitting and who we're working with right now, I think these exercises bring these questions up. And, and so the key part in my mind is you do not want to have to make that decision for the first time downrange. You need these exercises to be exposed to the question so that in your mind a week from now a, a two, couple days from now or a couple months from now you've already asked yourself the question you already know what the real question is so that you will make you will come up with the best answer and so whether you do it here or you do it you know at fort bragg or camp lejeune um, you need these exercises to get that question for the first time
0: right outstanding well cool hey thank you mark thanks dennis for today's podcast be sure to go to our website www.prolongfieldcare.org find us on facebook youtube instagram subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine this is Dennis for the PFC podcast our boy is waiting
1: for you